This thought of returning to God. Last week was tough. If, uh, if you were here, the text was, uh, was an interesting text to say the least. Probably not one used in a lot of ways uh, to kick off a, a um, wonderful church uh, revival or anything like that. It was a lot of judgment. It was a lot of locusts. It was bugs and destruction and drought. And, uh, but it was, it was insightful for me. It was good to learn. Good to go through those things and see how Israel was acquainted with the consequence of their sin more times than not. It reminded me as we come to the text today that we all stand in need of mercy. I need mercy. You need mercy. What the Bible calls mercy is rich and complicated and it's evidenced by the fact that there are so many different words that the Bible uses. Hebrew and Greek words are needed to comprehend what mercy actually means. There are many synonyms employed in translations, even in our pews this morning, kindness, loving kindness, goodness, some expressions of grace and favor, pity, compassion, steadfast love, even the hesed that we've talked about of God is an expression of God's mercy. But the theme throughout all of those concepts is this thought of a compassionate disposition to forgive an offender, to help or to spare him or her in their sorry plight. I need mercy. You need mercy. Israel, dealing with all that they dealt with, with these locust plagues, needed mercy. Israel certainly does all throughout its historic and story journey of obedience and disobedience to God. Last week, we spoke of sin's painful price. Joel gave us a poetic but front row seat into the painful judgment on a nation that would disobey God. Massive scale, locusts completely wiping everything out and the drought making it even worse. We saw when we looked at that an immediate, watch this, day of the Lord. Israel was dealing with a day of the Lord in that day, a day of judgment. Then we saw teed up uh, an an imminent day of the Lord as we came to chapter 2. Think back to that first one, though, in chapter 1. The land was ravaged. Everyone was mourning. There was weeping and wailing. There wasn't sufficient supply even to perform the most basic ceremonies and sacrifices for the worship of the Lord. There was a call to repent in chapter 1, and then we see the imminent day of the Lord in chapter 2. Whether this was a second locust wave or whether this was a coming northern invasion from a heathen nation, strange glimpses of the final day of judgment, or a mix of all three, things were going from bad to worse, kind of like the headlines in 2020. Not quite with locusts and droughts and stuff, but would it shock any of you if the murder hornet started having locust babies in the Charlotte area? And they probably all live in Bradford pears. I'm just going to say that to my landscaping guy there. I'm telling you, it's been a year, right? And, and I've heard people say, is this the judgment of God? Is this the judgment of God? And, and the response biblically with Bibles open is, no, but yes but no, but kind of. 
You see, the Bible says that we all, all of us that are here, we live in a broken world. We learn this concept with the original sin of man. We, we learn that things are out of whack. They're not out of God's control. We also know that God can use anything he wants for his pleasure to do what he wants because he's God all by himself. So, no, this is not God pouring out his wrath on the earth. Trust me, there will be no debate when that happens. Nobody will be scratching their head wondering, is this the wrath of God? Is this the judgment? Uh, No, no, no. Even the God-hating atheist will have to acknowledge and bow the knee and confess that he's Lord. We see an imminent day of the Lord coming. They've been promised more judgment, and so there's a call to fast and repent in chapter 2. Then the Lord responds to the repentance. Can I tell you, church, God always responds to genuine repentance. Mercy is still at the foremost of God's attitude with His covenantal people. The invitation is given to return in penitence to Him and to find Him to be gracious and compassion. Take your Bibles and look at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 2 and notice the major shift in what's happening. I've titled this morning, Much Better Than Sin's Painful Price. <laughs> okay? You endured that one. This morning it's mercy, wholeness, and praise. Next week's not so great, but this morning is mercy, wholeness, and praise. Praise God. Uh, can I get an amen from the church? Just a, okay, good. Yeah, you're with me. There are folks here if you're watching online. Verses 18 and 19. Let's just look at the text together. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. There's that had pity, compassion, mercy. The Lord answered and said to his people. He answered what? Their confession, their repentance. He says, behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil and you'll be satisfied and I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. You remember the note that we ended on last week. There's call for mass-scale repentance from the priests to the impoverished, from the uppity-ups to the down-and-outs. Everybody needed to be in sackcloth and ashes and repenting because the day of the Lord had come. But the Hebrew here is such a sharp transition. The text at this point abruptly, abruptly moves from crisis and lamentation to salvation and vindication. Now this is normal in lament psalms. You see this happen also. Remember Joel is a minor prophet and he's using poetry to talk to us. We, we don't read every book of the Bible the same way. You read poetry like poetry. You read prophecy like prophecy. You read history like history. You with me? We're, we're about to see a, a, a just God's beautiful, lavish mercy unfold on his people. That's crazy. This had pity or responding became jealous for his land and had pity on his people might better be rendered. He was moved to compassion over his people. And that's even an insufficient rendering because it would suggest that God was here and needed to be here. That's not what happened. But God does respond to repentance. The Bible is clear. God's compassion And the people's praise, it's worth noting that this word jealous here appears in the Bible way before this. In Exodus chapter number 20, 
When the Lord is thundering down the law, He says, You shall not bow down to them, that's other gods, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous. It's one of the names of God, is a jealous God. I don't know if anybody under 35 knows who Oprah Winfrey is, but it's one of the reasons that she in the public zeitgeist, has checked out of biblical Christianity. She refuses to submit to a God that describes himself as jealous. She likes some of the things about Jesus, but make no mistake, she has publicly renounced biblical Christianity. Our God is a jealous God because he alone is worthy. He's jealous for his namesake. He's he's jealous to Israel. He gave his law. He's jealous for his people. He gave his covenants, the temple, the priesthood, a special land, the promise that they would bless the whole world. From Israel came the written word of God and the gift of the Savior in this context. When he says, I'm jealous for the land, he means I'm jealous for my namesake. You see, other nations had begun to mock and ridicule Judah here because they said, your God can't even provide for you in this stage. These poetic words used here, chosen by the very Holy Spirit of God, are profound. The sinful nation that deserves even more judgment has not been cast off by God. They're still His people. It's beautiful. That same thought is repeated by the other prophets who are laying down the judgment thick. God still describes them as His people. Such a gracious God would turn and have pity What God is this? Joel's concern here is that the people give the Lord praise. We'll see that unfold here in just a moment. Let me give you uh, just a couple of notes to frame out this section this morning. The first note I tell you kind of covers verses 19 through 20 and 24 through 25. Here's a note, mercy, what restoration. It's a play on words, of course, but we see God's mercy and we see it playing out in the restoration of Israel. Mercy. What restoration. Now, last week we did this. We had a lot of text to cover. Not as much text this week, but I'm going to ask you to keep those Bibles open right there and just follow along as I just bring out a little bit from the text. We've had it read. I've read some more. You know I'm going to read more scripture, but I won't have time to read every single nuance of every verse. The Lord says, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied. God is sending back the things that the Lord took away. Look at verses 19 through 20. Just have that open. Look there while I'm talking about these things. We're reminded of what Job says, right? He gives and he takes away, and we bless the name of the Lord, whether we have much or have little. He says, I'm taking away your reproach. The Lord will set you up to glorify him. Now, he's doing this for Israel, and I want you to know he's doing this for you, too, today. Whether you have much or little, God has set you up to give him glory. He's removing the invaders. Look at verse 20. The invaders that have come. I'll remove the northerner. Now, you southerners, don't get too excited here. That's not what that means. He says, I'll remove the northerner. So the armies that would invade Israel always came from the north. And the locust swarms came from the, say it, north right so he said i'm removing the invader whether it's the locusts or whether it's the army he's dispersing them he's disposing of them who is this northern army for those of you that weren't with us last week some have suggested that it refers to an army of a military invasion some suggest that it's the locusts 
If it references the locusts earlier in the book as taken literally, then it most likely relates to that plague as well. Well-documented instances of locusts coming from the north have, continuing, uh, have helped to continue this interpretation of the locust plague. Here's the reminder, though. God in his sovereignty who brought the locusts is also the one who will remove the locusts from the land. Is this an end-time picture of the nations battling in the final battle? It certainly has allusions to that as well. The case can easily be made. This addresses the first and second waves that we've already addressed. Look at what he's talking about. Verse 24, this God of restoration. I have to turn my page for that. I don't know if you do. The grain, the wine, and the oil overflow. Joel's concern here was that the people would once again have offerings to bring to the Lord, not just food on their tables. Can I tell you that God, the God that we pray to, that we say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, the God that we ask for, the God that is whose hand provides everything that we need, is not just concerned with meeting your daily need and filling up your want and wish tank so that you can check off your list. No, He's providing for you so that we can live our lives as sacrificial offerings to the Lord. Giving financially of ourselves to the work of God, also to those who have need. Giving of our time. We have strength to serve the Lord with gladness. Be amazed at that. Verse 25. Now this is an interesting text here. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Mercy. What restoration? The years? Can I give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon? You cannot have back your time, but there's a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of the years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. It's a pity that they should have been locust-eaten by your folly and negligence. But if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. You don't get to reset the clock. He's not talking about literally giving them back the years. But when they get down the road a little bit, there'll be no indication from a provision standpoint that it ever happened. I'm trying not to rush to application here to the modern day, but what a good God. Mercy. Mercy, what restoration. Notice at the end of verse 25, this is alarming to many of us. He says, look, my great army, which I sent among you, lest they forget we're reminded of God's omnipotence and His sovereignty here. That God would say, my great army, describing either the pagan military force or the swarming destructive locusts, reminds Israel that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of history. He's in control of all nations and they ultimately serve His purposes no matter His intentions. Don't let the news headlines scare the life out of you if they are open your bible you're doing it wrong 
If they are, turn off the newsfeed. Be reminded that nothing happens outside the control of God and God can use Pharaoh and actually move on Pharaoh's heart. Now we say that and we think, oh man, praise God, He's, God moved on his heart. God moved on Pharaoh's heart and it was hardened to bring about his purpose and his glory. We don't like that. That's hard. It doesn't reconcile. That's not clean, pretty, and tidy. It doesn't sell in the bestseller list. But I want to tell you, God is sovereign. He's in charge, and he'll use whatever he wants to accomplish his will for his glory. We'll come back to that in just a moment for application. But marvel at this incredible restoration that we see from God right in front of our eyes. Mercy, what restoration. Second header, ready? Mercy, what praise. Verses 21 through 23, and then we, we also pick up verse 26. Now here's a place to linger. Verse 21 through 23 and verse 26. Look at verse 21 with me if you've got your Bibles open. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Can you imagine with me for just a moment that you've endured the recent locust plagues, the total devastation of all the crops, and nothing even to take and offer? You don't have an animal healthy enough to take to the, to the church, if you will, for the sacrifice. And then the Lord himself says through his prophet, I'm going to restore you to wholeness. I'm going to heal the land. I'm forgiving your sin. Can you imagine what that party would look like? I mean, you don't even have anything to party with, but you're going to party over something, right? There was a praise and a shout that went up, brother or sister in Christ. Do you remember what it was like to find out that your sins had been forgiven? Can I take you back to that moment for just a moment? Mercy, what praise should be on our lips? Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not. In the Old Testament, the God that a lot of our uh, modern-day folk have a lot of problem with, God of the Old Testament, they like Jesus healing the sick and, and raising the, the dead and, and blessing the lame and, and speaking against some social ills, and, and they'll take the favorite verses and cherry-pick those, but... Can I remind you, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, fear not, is there 75 times. Fear not, fear not. It's clear here that in Joel 1 and 2, locusts and armies and drought all are a part of God's judgment on the land. They had much to be afraid of. And God that brought it about with armies that he used says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He had judged the land. He had judged the people. He judged the animals. And now he's saying, fear not. What about us? Is there really anything to be afraid of? Well, I've just told you to take a pass on some of the headlines, but can I remind you that we were cut off from God. When we were outside the faith, we were actually at war with God. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are at war with God. You stand condemned already because you are rejecting the truth. And His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. We were destined for the eternal judgment of God, and rightfully so. The God of this Bible is the righteous, eternal judge. And he is capable of meeting out justice to his holy and perfect standards. And there are none righteous. No, not one. 
that this God that breathed the breath of life into lump of clay as was base, but beautifully transformed it into the imago dei, that this God who authored all life with the explosive creative power of his spoken word alone, it's not the image that works well in our touchy-feely society, but I've come to tell you this morning, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ's free offer of the gospel, there is no hope for your soul. To reject the offer from the Bible is to trample underfoot the precious blood of Jesus Christ and hell will not be hot enough or brutal enough for somebody who would hear the glorious gospel message to hear it and refuse the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered, bled, and died upon Calvary's cross to save sinners like you and me. To refuse the gospel puts your blood on your hands and you will suffer in hell forever ever under the torment of a, and the wrath of a holy God. You will be among the torment of the damned and you will never find relief for your soul. But such were some of you, but you were washed. <laughs> you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Where fear once ruled, Love now reigns for the believer. That described all of us B.C. before Christ. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world, 1 John 4. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has come to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us fear not be glad rejoice it's not only the command of God as a result of his compassionate mercy it is the beautiful normative response for the child of God who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good verse 21 he says fear not be glad rejoice he's done great things verse 22 beasts are flourishing again you see it the fields are green and lush. Trees and fruits and vineyards are back fully. Verse 23, early and latter seasonal rains will be abundant. God's provision will vindicate you among the God-hating heathen tribes around. God's restoring Israel beautifully here. Mercy, what a praise. The destruction caused by the locust invasion and the evading army is now reversed. Covenant blessings are being restored. Lastly, this morning, Mercy, what a promise. Mercy, what a promise. The last verse, actually, we'll pick up a little bit of 26 there and hit it. Here's what it says. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the ultimate promise here. It's for complete, unbroken fellowship with the Lord. He says, my people, no more shame. Do you see it? You'll know that I'm in the midst, verse 27. You'll know. You won't have to hope. You won't have to guess. You won't have to rely on earthly priests. You will know. It will be obvious. Anytime the Lord said, I will be in the midst, it was implied that the Lord was about to do some mighty work that would teach them a lesson about his great power. God's presence throughout the Old Testament symbolized with his people by the tent of meeting. The New Testament reveals to us in John 1 and 14 that the human flesh, 
Jesus coming in human flesh was the fulfillment of that earthly tent of meeting. God's Son came and pitched His tent with us. The gospel brings assurance that He is in the midst of His people now and will be so for the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. Mercy, what a promise. There's a picture here that points way far ahead to heaven. Way far ahead to eschatological truths for you Bible nerds out there, end time stuff. But there's a picture here that points to the presence of God with his people, leading his people. God is with us. Oh, he's with us. Let me close this morning. Genuine biblical repentance on the people's part always results in divine intervention on God's part. While this section of Joel's prophecy stresses God's mercy to Judah, I want you to see the consistent nature of God on display. Think back with me, okay? Sorrow is turned to joy when God overturns opposing forces. He assures his people that he's able to do great things for them to act wondrously on behalf of those who trust him. The Lord's promise was that he would dwell with Israel and that they would know that he was the one who had redeemed them from Egypt. Now assurance is given that God, their God, the only God, is in their midst. The impending judgment, the wages of our sin, the Bible says, is death. Our impending judgment can be turned from sorrow and separation into joy and nearness. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, God can and will restore what the enemy takes out of our lives. To whatever degree, broken relationships, broken bodies, broken minds, hear me now, this is not prosperity theology, whether in this life or in the life to come, let me remind you, for you to live is not just to have it made in the shade. It's not the promise. For you to live may mean that you live broken in your body in your emotions, in your mind. For you to live, you can be in Christ and in trouble physically. You can have stuff, issues. Some of us have so many issues, we've got subscriptions. No? Okay, thank you. But the reality is this, to live is Christ. Heaven will fix it all. And if that sounds like escapism to you, I'm okay with that. Because I long to be with the Lord for all eternity. We have the presence of God as we walk in the Spirit, as we gather to worship, as we get into the Word so the Word can get into us. Mercy, what a promise. Mercy, what restoration. And because of His mercy, what a praising people we ought to be. Fear not, for there is great mercy. Be glad for the wholeness that we have in Christ. Rejoice, because we are the people of praise. I wonder if you'd stand with me now and we can pray together while the musicians are coming. This minor prophet is such a beautiful, poetic view of God's judgment, yes, of the consequence of sin, yes, but also of God's mercy. We all stand in need of God's mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge this morning that our best is not good enough, that we settle for far less 
when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But Lord, like they proclaimed in Psalm 126, because we have tasted mercy and we have escaped the wrath that is to come because of the finished work of the cross, minimally, we should identify with Judah during this time. Our mouths should be filled with laughter. Our tongues with shouts of joy. Others should be able to look at us and to listen to us and say, the Lord has done great things for them, for you have done great things for us. We will not fear. We will be glad. And we will rejoice as we leave this gathering to do your work, your way, so that you get all the glory. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.